Mark chapter 9 is where we are. How many of you since uh, COVID have returned and gone to a movie? How many of you go? Okay, a lot of us. For a while there was like no one had gone to movies, it seemed like forever. But I think now um, some movies are starting to come back out. A few people are starting to get out there. I think Top Gun brought in a lot of people back to uh, the movies who had not been going to movies previously. Um, Ash and I have been to a couple of movies um, since the pandemic, most of them related to some type of animated dog or some cartoon or something. It's kind of our, our movie selections at this point in life with Levi. Uh, we did sneak out on a date and see uh, Top Gun, and so that was our adult movie. But a lot of the reasons that people don't go to movies uh, is uh, because of the expenses of it, right? Um, movies can be expensive not only to get in, but then they get you with the snacks. And I'm on to what you do, because we do it too. I see you coming in with your massive bags. Wiped out the entire candy section at Dollar General before you went to the movies. I see you. I see you. Don't look at the size of Ashley's purse when we go in either, right? Uh, but movies can be expensive. But one of the things about movies, and I feel like this is even more since the pandemic, I feel like that the previews at movies now are as long as the movie itself. Anyone with me on this? Like, all right, movie's going to be at 7, so we'll just show up at 7.45 and be okay because it's just going to be previews, it seems like, for uh, 30, 45 minutes. I used to kind of look forward to previews when it was like three previews. But now it's like 33 previews. I'm less excited about going to the previews. Uh, What we are getting today in Mark's gospel is a preview. It is a sneak peek of what is to come for Jesus, and not just Jesus, but his followers. It is a preview of his glory. And we saw that in the text that Tyler read. It's called the Transfiguration text. Let me kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, by the way. I do want to encourage you, if you're a regular City Church person or even not, um, the last two messages that we've preached from Mark chapter 8 are just pivotal messages in our Christian journey. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to those or you weren't here, to go back and listen to those, Uh, particularly what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. We talked about that last week. It was a pretty um, heavy and uh, hopefully encouraging message about what it means to follow Him. And so go back and, and listen to those. Again, you can pick those up on podcast or our website or our app. There's plenty of resources out there, YouTube, um, to be able to listen to previous messages. But what's happening in Mark chapter 9 is in this broader context of this kind of definitive question that Jesus asked his disciples while they were traveling. Uh, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They gave kind of the common responses, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked this very pinpointed, very defining question of the disciples. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked this question, and it kind of sets the direction for their commitment to him. As they kind of began to understand who Jesus is, that question is defining for them, what is your commitment to Jesus? It also sets the direction for the remainder of his ministry on earth, this very cross-focused, cross-centered mission. And it also, I said, as a shift in Mark's gospel. The rest of the gospel of Mark is very different. Uh, it has a different purpose than the first half of, the Mark, of, the, of Mark's gospel. And it's all centered on this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter initially answers this question correctly. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. That was his response, an accurate response. But as we learned last week, at this point in their journey... The disciples do not fully grasp 
who Jesus is. They don't really get who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is radically reshaping their understanding of the Messiah, who's the Messiah going to be, and the kingdom, the establishment of God's kingdom. He's informed them that the Messiah is going to suffer and die. And then we saw last week, those who desire to follow him, they must die. Die to self, take up their cross, and follow his sacrificial path. And then I love how Peter kind of pushes back, pulls Jesus to the side, and the text says he rebukes Jesus. I think I said last week, Life Lesson 101, never rebuke Jesus, right? So he pulls Jesus to the side, corrects Jesus, rebukes Jesus, because this is not the type of Messiah they were looking for and anticipating. And to be fair, that's what Peter knew. He was raised to believe Messiah would look a certain way and and do certain things. And Jesus is not that. They're unable to grasp fully God's redemptive plan at this point. And yet Jesus is very patient with them, right? Continues to call, continues to lead them along. You're like, well, you may not have been that patient last week because he said to Peter, when Peter rebuked him, get behind me, Satan. Life lesson number two, do not do anything that will cause Jesus to call you Satan. Um, but even in, that, even in that rebuke of Jesus, get behind me, Satan, we see this built-in invitation to Peter, follow me. Peter, you get behind me. You just follow me. You follow my agenda for your life and not your own. Get behind me. Follow me. He's continually reshaping and redefining their understanding of what it means to follow him. He is patient with them and he invites them as he does us to live under his rule and reign. But by telling his followers that he must suffer and die, Jesus has just thrown the disciples into uh, this kind of tailspin of confusion. But what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration that we read this week is Jesus provides them assurance, assurance amid their concerns. He also confirms this very cross-focused, cross-centered purpose and mission, and he gives them this preview, this sneak peek into the heavenly glory that awaits Jesus following his death and resurrection, and I would also say those who who follow him. So uh, let's walk through this text together, and we'll kind of discuss some relevance for our lives in the end. Now, verse 2 and 3 again, Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So this event, I read it in our call to worship, echoes some of the same themes that we find in the book of Exodus, particularly uh, chapters 24 through 34. It's in that section of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so we see some of the same language uh, from Exodus here in the Mount of Transfiguration. It was in Exodus that we saw it was a six-day ordeal that Moses was making his way up the mountain. Here we see that. It parallels that six-day sojourn of Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses went up into a high mountain. We see here a high mountain. A high mountain was a very common place to meet with God. It was where God would reveal himself to humans. Um, Mountains in Jesus' story were where where we find him praying. He is preaching. He's performing miracles in mountains. He calls and commissions his disciples. And then ultimately, of course, he dies on a mountain, Mount 
Calvary. He dies on a cross on a mountain. It is again and again on mountains where God tends to reveal himself to humans. That God and humans connect. That God and humans meet on the mountains. The high points, right? That's where God tends to show up on the mountains. Now, I don't know if this is an argument for taking vacations to the mountains because that's where God meets. I can tell you, if you're trying to make your way through Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, you need some prayer. Man, you're hoping God shows up in that place. It's like, man, if I see one more tail light in front of me with the brakes lights on, right? Uh, it used to not be that way. It seems like it's that way now. I'm saying that and I haven't been in like 10 years, but from what I hear, right, it's the same. See, testimony right there. It's the same. Raising their hands in worship over that, like, God cleared the traffic of Gatlinburg. Woo! Praise Jesus! God shows up, right, on the mountains, right? That's where we meet God. Now, this phrase that's used here, that Jesus was transfigured, it comes from the original word uh, metamorphine, which you can hear metamorphosis, right, which means transformation, that Jesus transforms before them. The text even says his clothes transform. They are radiantly white. This again, book of Exodus, when Moses meets with God, he comes down and his face is glowing uh, when he meets with God. This kind of radiant transformation that takes place. And I love how the text says that, um, that his clothes become so white that it's beyond bleach. That you can't even bleach on earth that white. I know if I say that to my wife, she's like, I'm up for the challenge. I'm going to test this. I think I can bleach it equally as white, right? Some of you are like her. I always get cracked up. You know how uh, Facebook will, will throw up little things from some of your followers of different pages that they like? Um, I was scrolling Facebook one time, and it popped up on my news feed. Ashley Hudson likes Windex. Yay! Teased her relentlessly about that. She actually went on the Windex page and gave it a thumbs up, right? Ashley Hudson likes Windex. Uh, so radiantly white beyond bleach. Now, so Jesus is transfigured, transformed before them. And then this interesting conversation that happens, verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah. And Mark just says it so casually, Right? He's on the mountain, and there's Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Like, you would think I was out of my mind if I got up here and was like, this week I was, you know, on a mountain, and I had this conversation with Abraham Lincoln and Bear Bryant. You'd be like, we need a new pastor or something. Like, you need to check Devin in somewhere. If I just said it so casually that I was talking to Abraham Lincoln, and some of you Alabama fans, I know what you're thinking like if this had been later in history, it would have been Bear Bryant on the mountain, right? I know what some of you are thinking. Jesus is conversing with Bear Bryant and Moses. You kind of put them in the same category. Well, here's Jesus casually talking to Moses and Elijah. Matthew and Luke also tell this story. Uh, Luke says that the disciples were sleepy, that the disciples were basically nodding off until Moses and Elijah show up. And then they are awakened. They're awake. If Moses and Elijah show up, it's going to wake you up. And so he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Scholars will differ on why. Um, there's a couple of common things about them. They were both deliverers of God's people. 
Uh, they were both kind of these apocalyptic figures that are also mentioned about the end of times. They both represent kind of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and that Jesus is the fulfillment about those things. Uh, Luke actually tells us that they were discussing what was about to happen to him, his suffering and his death. So there's an important point here that we can't miss in the text, and that is this idea. Moses and Elijah are not the big dogs at this party. Don't miss that. It's cool that Moses and Elijah show up, and it kind of captures our attention. But they're not the big dogs at this party. Moses and Elijah are playing second fiddle to Jesus. They're in the presence of the Son of God. It's also compelling that the disciples, what captures their attention is Moses and Elijah. Now think about that. They're living their lives for three plus years with the Son of God, the creator of the world. They're living their lives with the one who will die on the cross for the sins of humanity. And what captures their attention are the second fiddle players, Moses and Elijah. They're in the presence of the Son of God, and yet they've kind of failed to recognize that is. I know kind of in my own spiritual life I can kind of fall into that trap. Just kind of getting used to Jesus, not really recognizing the significance of, of who he is for all of eternity. They're ready to build tents and hang out with Moses and Elijah, and they've been living life with the Son of God. So verses 5 and 6, Peter speaks up, which is not uncommon for Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is one of those awkward response moments for Peter. We've all had those things, right? When you say something, and you're like, why did I say that? One of my favorites is being at the airport. You're checking in for your flight, right? The flight attendant will say, hope you have a good flight, to which you've responded on occasion. You too. Wait, <laughs> they're not flying. You're flying. You too's the wrong response. Did y'all get that? What I just said? Have a good flight. What did I say? Oh, the person checking you in. The flight attendant flies. I've been corrected by my wife from the front row. Whoever's checking you in, have a good flight. You too. I'm behind my computer. I need to jump right back into the text. Awkward response from Peter. And the text says he's afraid, and he doesn't really know what to say. So what he does is he suggests, let's set up some tents and hang out for a while. By the way, this is a fitting response from a knowledgeable and pious Jew. Um, the prophet Zechariah refers to the day of the Lord, the end of time, and that there will be kind of this reanimation of the Feast of Booths, which was a common celebration uh, that the Jewish people would participate in as a uh, reminder of their days in Egypt. And Zechariah says there's coming a day in the day of the Lord when there'll be this celebration. And so Peter, a knowledgeable Jew, kind of says, hey, this is the time. Let's set up the booths. Let's set up the tents. This is the end of time. Let's hang out here for a while. Again, Peter is still thinking in terms of 
the invasion of God's kingdom on earth is going to be defined by triumph and the establishment of this earthly dynasty. He's still wanting to sidestep this whole idea of a king, of a Messiah who's rejected and suffers and dies. He's trying to get out of that. What Peter has not grasped fully is Jesus is a Messiah, is a king who will initially establish his rule and reign in the hearts and lives of his people. It is inside-out transformation. Now let's be brutally honest for a minute. We are a lot like Peter. We're a lot like Peter in these moments. Man, we love to dwell on the mountaintop moments of life. It's a lot more appealing to live in the mountaintop moments of life than to have to suffer through the valley. It's a lot more appealing to us to, for everything to be going okay. Right? I want the glory, but I don't care for the pain. And the path of suffering is less enticing than the path of triumph. Living on the mountaintop. Man, let's set up some tents here. I can live here. Let's hang out here for a while. Because the mountaintops are so much more appealing to us than the valley. Same thing Peter's struggling with. He wants a Messiah who will rule and reign and establish an earthly kingdom. But this idea of a Messiah who would suffer and die and walk the path of suffering to the road of glory is unappealing to Peter, just like it's unappealing to me in a lot of ways. To have to go through stuff, to have to walk through the valley, like nobody's signing the dotted line for that, right? We put that sign-up sheet out on the table, it's going to end up blank, right? Path of suffering, sign up here. There's no sign-me-ups for that because we're a lot like Peter. We want to live on the mountaintops of life, but it's in the valley where God most often does His work. And then Jesus brings us back like He did last week to what it means to follow Him. If you want to follow me, right? If you want to save your life, you lose it. If you want to gain, it only happens through losing. The path of glory goes through suffering. Resurrection comes after death. It is the path of the cross. And as we said last week, the path of the cross is the path to life. So resurrection, life. Did you know that intimacy with God happens more easily in the valley than it does on the mountaintop? Because when I'm on the mountaintop, I don't really feel like I need anything, right? Everything's going great. There's money in the bank account. Marriage seems to be going well. Kids seem to be happy. You know, I'm at a good place in life. There's really not a lot of need to lean into Jesus in those moments. It's when we go through the valleys of life when I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay the bills next month because I've lost a job or my marriage is on the rocks or my kids seem to be making the decisions that they should not be making or I'm not getting along or I hate my job or I have ended up in a place in life I didn't think I was going to be. Like it's in the valleys that we are forced and pushed to lean into Jesus. It's where intimacy is often developed with the Savior more in the valley than on the mountaintop. That's why Psalm 23 is like, I'm going to force you. I'm going to force you to lie down. You're not going to want to lie down. But I'm going to force you to lie down in the green pastures. Because it's in those moments of life that we really begin to understand who the Messiah is, the King is, who Jesus is. 
So verse 7, they're now overwhelmed and surrounded by this cloud. Um, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. You might remember that. It's the same voice, the same sentence basically that was uttered at Jesus' baptism. But they are overshadowed by this cloud. This word translated cloud is also used in Exodus chapter 40. It describes the cloud that fills the tabernacle. Uh, it's used in 1 Kings 8. It's the cloud that fills Solomon's temple when Solomon builds his temple for God. Another place that this word is used, interesting enough, is in uh, Luke chapter 1 where the scriptures say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is overshadowed. Same word, overshadowed by the power of God in the Annunciation. Remember the angel shows up and announces to Mary that she's going to birth the Son of God, like she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And the scriptures say the power of God overshadowed her same word here and so this idea of the cloud and this idea of overshadowing it symbolizes the presence of God and the power of God and the glory of God and so Jesus is being affirmed by God here there's this cloud this presence of God in this moment and then this moment reaches its climax with this heavenly voice of God this is my son whom I love listen to him listen to him pay attention these words that the father speaks in this moment is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is, is God on earth. Listen to what He has to say. Know who He is and listen to Him. This is discipleship 101. Know Jesus and then listen to Him. And then suddenly the disciples are all alone with Jesus again. Verse 8, suddenly looking around. They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So as quickly as it happened, it, Moses and Elijah are gone. The disciples look around and they see they're alone with Jesus. Again, the symbolism here is Jesus is all they need. He's all they need. They don't need Moses. They're not following Moses. They're not following Elijah. They're following Jesus. Moses and Elijah have no permanent relation to who Jesus is. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who will be with his followers. And I want to encourage you, follower, this morning. There will be times in life when you look around and Jesus is all you have. You may be in that place right now. Jesus is all you have. I want you to hear me. Hear me closely. He's all you need. He's all you have. He's all you need. You may be at a place in life where you feel like even my spouse is not with me right now. There's too much going on, too much tension, too much fighting, too much conflict. I'm not even sure we're going to end up married. And you look around and maybe the person you thought was with you is not with you. Or at least the perception is they're not with you. Hear me. He's with you. Jesus is with you. And he's all that you need. Now we work hard. We, you know. Seek to have healthy relationships. We don't just allow that to happen, right? We press into Jesus to heal our marriages, heal our hearts, all those things. But there's going to be times in life where you feel like He's all I have. And that's okay because He is all you need. In the valleys of life, He is all you need. He is more than enough. He is the Creator, the Son of God. He's greater than any human. 
He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than your spouse. He's greater than your kids. He's greater than your parents. He's greater than your friends or your boss or your co-workers, whoever it is going on in your life. Jesus is greater, right? I've told you again how this breaks down practically in my marriage is if I'm expecting Ashley to be all that I need, she's going to fail me because she's human. I can't put her in the position that I am to hold Jesus, right? I can't be for her what Jesus is for her. Now, as I'm leaning into Jesus, right, I should seek to be that for her. But if I'm ever putting her in that place that is reserved for Jesus alone, there's going to be disappointment and hurt and anger and bitterness because that's unfair to her to hold her to that. She wasn't created to be that in my life. Some of you have your kids in that place. You have your kids in a place that is to be reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. And you're trying to find your fulfillment and their happiness and wanting them to do what you want them to do, right? And they're going to disappoint you and maybe they're not going to be the star athlete or the the best student or maybe they're not always going to obey like you thought they were going to. And if you're holding them in that position that is reserved for Jesus alone, they're going to let you down and disappoint you and it's going to cause, right, questions, doubts, concerns, fears, anxiety, worry, all the things that go with that because you have put them in a position that is reserved for Jesus alone. He's what you need. Allow Him to be that. He is more than enough for you. So, they have this incredible moment, the Mount of Transfiguration, but Jesus is still shaping them. They're coming down the mountain, and as they're coming down, verse 9, as they're coming down the mountain, He charged them not to, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean they're still not getting it so they're descending the mountain back into reality we'll see this next week clearly and Jesus again instructs his followers we've seen throughout Mark's gospel I want you to be quiet about this experience remain quiet about this until after the resurrection it is only after they see Jesus raised from the dead that they begin to really grasp who he is now unlike other people we've seen in Mark's gospel they actually remain quiet about it they comply uh, to Jesus's request other people are like okay Jesus and then they go on blabbing about it right causes problems and all those things the disciples seem to at least respect and honor his his um, request here and then verse 11 they fall right back into the same conversation they ask him why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come and he said to them Elijah does come first to restore all things and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So right back into this conversation about the establishment of God's kingdom. The disciples are questioning about the return of Elijah. Their question is, is, is rooted in uh, the book of Malachi, and it's in the book of Malachi that the scriptures say that Elijah will be sent by God uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that Elijah will come and restore righteousness. And so again, in the disciples' distorted view of the kingdom of God, Elijah's going to show up. They just saw him on the mountain, right? Elijah's going to show up and establish the world 
for the rule and reign of the Messiah. So they're right back to this idea of the Messiah who will rule and reign and set up this earthly kingdom. And Jesus again affirms the role of Elijah, but he reshapes their misguided belief to help them see this role has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled by John the baptizer. By the way, John the baptizer also walked the path of suffering. The path of death. Remember what happened to John? We talked about it in Mark's Gospel if you were here. Right? Decapitated. For the sake of the Gospel. So Jesus says there is going to be an Elijah. He's already, he's already come. It was John. And guess what? He suffered and died. Just as the Son of Man must do. Suffering precedes glory. So... Let me end with just a few reminders from the transfiguration of Jesus. Like, what does it teach us? Uh, so just a couple of things I want to highlight. Uh, one, I want us to remember from this text that Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms us. He transforms hearts and lives. This incident displays how the presence and power of God transforms us. That the gospel comes down to us where we are and that God is in the transformation business. Now, I want to say this because I think this is so important for us to understand. At times, God transforms instantaneous. Okay, So we all know those stories of people who, this was my life before Jesus, and I became a follower of Jesus, and everything was transformed instantaneous. I stopped doing this or doing that or whatever that looks like for them. We know stories of instantaneous transformation. But I want you to hear me clearly, because I think that is most often the exception to the rule. Most of the time, transformation happens over time. It is a process. It is the process of leaning in to Jesus and being transformed through that process. It is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to bring about life change over time. And so here's how I'll encourage you. Be persistent in that process. Be steady in your walk. Like live in the rhythms of grace and allow God to do His work in you. That's how transformation most often happens. Paul says it this way. Be transformed, there's our word, be transformed by the renewing, that word renewing is this ongoing process, be transformed by the constant, ongoing renewing of your mind. And what Paul, the language that Paul uses there, renewing of your mind, is repentance language. We've been talking about repentance as this idea of turning from living under my rule and reign to living under His rule and reign in my life. And so Paul uses this continual language to say that as followers of Jesus, Transformation happens as I am constantly and continually, right, living with this attitude of repentance in my life. I'm constantly living under His rule and reign in my life. I'm constantly shifting from my agenda, my purposes, my aims, and living under His rule and reign in my life. And most often for followers of Jesus, that happens in the rhythm of everyday life. There, I, it's awesome when instantaneous transformation happens. And some of you may have that story. But what I see, right, in the everyday people seeking to follow Jesus is transformation normally happens 
in the everyday rhythms of the ongoing process of God making us more like Him and less like us. So don't be like discouragement, like, man, I was struggling. I thought I would be over this by now. I thought I'd be done with this when I started following Jesus. Because you'll fall back into that idea of you trying to figure it out and earn your way, and if I could just give this up, then everything would be okay, right? Instead, allow God to continue to do His work. Be in it, right? Be a part of the process. Take those steps. Be renewing your mind. My mind is being made new, is Paul's idea. We are able to discern God's work for us, Paul says in the rest of that verse. So, as disciples, as disciples, as followers, we should be able to look back over seasons of time and see how God has been transforming us as a person. That's, that's what we remember. It's not like, man, I was doing this on Monday and I'm not doing it on Tuesday. How amazing is God? That happens on occasion. But most of the time is, I, I've been following Jesus for a while. And I can tell you I'm not the same person as I was 10 years ago. I can see the rhythms of grace that have happened in my life. So I'm not the same spouse as I was five years ago. I'm not the same parent I was 10 years ago, right? Which I don't know what that says about your first child, first parenting experience. I mean, I tell you guys all the time, I'm just like constantly apologizing to Kaylee, like, you were the first one, I'm not the same person I am now, like, well, good for Levi, bad for me, but I'm not the same person, right? I'm not the same parent, I'm not the same spouse, I'm not the same, hopefully, employer or employee, I'm not the same friend. My life is being transformed by the gospel. Now, we know spiritual journey is this, isn't it? Three steps forward, one back. Two steps forward, six back. Seven forward, one back, right? That's, that's the reality of the spiritual journey. But can I look back through the seasons of time in my life and see how God has been transforming and working? That's why it's so important to remember what God is doing. I'm not where I will be one day, but I'm not where I was, right? That God is doing His work. And the, the, the Scriptures speak of transformation from the inside out. We want instantaneous. We want, I don't want to have to struggle with this anymore. We want, I wish I was this way. But what happens? That's mountaintop. That's mountaintop stuff. The rhythms happen in the valley. Right? Maybe your struggle with this is because it forces you to lean more deeply into Jesus. I need you. I need you in this moment for this going on in my life. The process, the work happens in the grind. Now, gospel right here. Remember, transformation inside out. It's inside out. Like if you hear me saying these things and you think, yeah, I'm not abiding by the rules. I'm not... Do, 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 don't, 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 don't. You're missing the gospel. The gospel's not do's and don'ts. The gospel's about inside-out transformation. Does it impact how I live everyday life? And does it flesh itself out in the decisions I make and what I choose to do and not do? Of course. But if you flip that, if you think the do's and don'ts is what transforms you, you're going to get very frustrated. 
right? Or you're going to obtain some level of pride because you finally accomplished it. It's inside out. The Holy Spirit doing His work and how it fleshes itself out in our lives over time. Jesus transforms us. The second thing I see from this text is there is glory that awaits. There's glory that awaits us. I told you from the beginning, this is a sneak peek. It's a sneak peek that reminds us that this life is not the end of the story. This life's not the end of the story. Glory awaits those who are part of God's eternal kingdom. So let me encourage you. On the other side of suffering, there is comfort. On the other side of pain, on the other side of pain, there is wholeness. On the other side of sickness, there is healing. On the other side of death, there is life. On the other side of the cross, there was an empty tomb. For whatever valley you are going through right now, that valley, you fill in the blank, whatever it is you're facing right now, that's bringing hurt, brokenness, heartache, sin into your life, whatever's in that blank, know as a follower of Jesus, it does not have the final word in your life. It doesn't have the final word, right? Your divorce doesn't have the final word in your life. Your cancer does not have the final word in your life. Your struggle does not have the final word in your life. Your addiction does not have the final word in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. On the other side of this world, glory awaits the follower of Jesus. It is the path of life. Resurrection awaits. And here's how I'll encourage you even deeper. Jesus has walked this path ahead of you. And He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. His resurrection guarantees mine. His resurrection guarantees ours. And this promise provides us hope and comfort in the valleys of life. So, as difficult as this is, embrace the valleys of life by leaning into Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, like, sign me up for the most difficult life in the world. I want to suffer. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is recognizing the reality of life is that you're going to live through hills and valleys, ups and downs. And when the valleys come, our tendency is to moan and groan and woe is me. And as I said last week, this is my cross to bear, right? That's our idea of the valleys of life. And I want to encourage you in the valleys of life to know that God has you there. He has you there for a season, for a moment. Lean in to Jesus. Come through the valley more dependent on Jesus than before. And that's not going to happen by, I'm going to man up and get through this thing, right? That's going to happen by leaning into the one who has walked the valley before you. Keep your eyes focused on him. And then let's end with this. Discipleship is about knowing Christ, knowing who Jesus is, and listening to him. This is my son, my beloved son, the Father says, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, discipleship is this constant realigning of our lives to who Jesus is. A constant shaping of our understanding of who he is 
and who I am in Him. Paul says, is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. So, get to know Jesus. Open up the Scriptures and read the Gospels again and again. Get to know Him. I asked these questions a couple weeks ago. I'll ask them again. Am I seeing? It's been this constant theme throughout March. Am I seeing? All right. If I'm seeing what God is doing, it means I have to look. I have to observe. Am I noticing the fingerprints of God happening in life? Am I seeing what God is doing? It's easy for us to see all the bad stuff, the negative stuff. It's easy for me to see what's wrong with my marriage and what's wrong with my parenting and how terrible my boss is. It's easy for me to see all those things. But am I stopping to see the fingerprints of God in my life? Maybe I have that cantankerous boss because God's teaching me something. One, I have a job. Two, right, I'm able to see that God is teaching me. Maybe it's patience, right? This guy's so terrible. God's teaching me patience. That's kind of our default button. Maybe God's teaching you to be Jesus and be kind in a difficult situation. It's easy for us to see what's wrong with our spouse. Am I seeing how God's working in my spouse? The fingerprints of God. It's easy for me to see where my kids are blowing it. Am I seeing the gift of children that God has given in my life? Am I seeing what God is working? I told you, simple as for me, in the morning, part of my routine most days, I'm going to grab the dog, I'm going to take him on a walk, and I'm going to stop for a minute to see the world around me and remember who's in control of it. Am I seeing? Am I hearing? If I'm going to hear, I've got to turn down the, life, the noise of life. I've got to stop listening to all these voices that want to speak into my life, and I've got to turn down the noise and listen what God has to say, to open up the Scriptures and see Jesus for who He is, to, to stop and pause and turn down the volume on the noise of life and listen. And then am I remembering? Am I remembering what God has done? Am I remembering His faithfulness? You know the one common thing in all three of these? Am I seeing, hearing, remembering? In order for it to happen, I have to be intentional. I have to be intentional. You're not going to see unless you're looking. You're not going to hear unless you're listening. You're not going to remember unless you're reflecting. Am I being intentional to know who Jesus is so that I can listen to Him? Jesus is on the mountaintops in all of His glory. But also, and perhaps more important for us in the here and now, he is also in the valley of life. And we are going to see that in its brutal nature in our text next Sunday. So if you want to cheat on the test, go ahead and read. Read beyond. Start reading in verse 14 and read through that next section. And we'll see how Jesus is in the valleys of life. So be encouraged today. If you're in the valley, look to him. He's doing something in your life. Lean into that. Hear, see, listen, remember. If you're on the mountaintop, 
Man, dwell there, focus on Jesus, because right around the corner, there's probably a valley coming, and you're going to need him, mountaintops and valleys. Let's pray.